You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. I live with two children, and living with children, they're my children. Um, living with children during Advent is really helpful. Because, especially, I, I, I relate to my oldest daughter a lot because she is always looking forward to the next thing. And she has a hard time waiting and enjoying the present moment and being still. And, and, and so do I, quite frankly. So, the, you know, the, uh, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. I think that's the saying, right? She's always on to the next thing. She's future-oriented. And I think a lot of kids are. I think a lot of people are. She's always talking about what's next. Like she's, she, it's very hard for her, she has a March birthday, to not talk about her birthday as it's approaching now. She even, and, and we discuss what cake she wants me to make for her, uh, her seventh birthday. That seems like I'm old when I say that. And I know, I know. Some of you are thinking, I have kids that are much older than that. But, you know, seven feels like a big number to me. Um, anyway, it can be frustrating to be at one holiday and wishing for the next thing, though, right? There's some impatience in that. There's a, there's a hastening to it, so to speak. But at the same time, that sort of waiting is fun and exciting because for my kid, as far as I can tell, her life is great and she knows it's just going to keep being great. There's going to be all this stuff that's going to happen that's exciting for her. So she's eating cake now. And she's dreaming of the cake she'll have next. She has all this stuff that's happening that's positive. And I, I, I kind of think that that's what it's like, or it can be what, what it's like to wait in the United States during Advent. Especially if you have some privilege and means, or your parents do, like my kid. Um, except the difference is, and I think this maybe even speaks to uh, the adults in the room more, Instead of being stressed out by all the fun that's coming, don't you get stressed when you think about the holidays, don't some of you? When you think about what's happening, and it's almost here, you got, have an anxiety about it, so it's not totally like joy. It's like planning and difficulty in relationships and parents and relatives, you know, like the uh, Sinatra song, uh, you talk to relatives that you hardly know. You know, Mistletoe and Holly? Can you know the song I'm talking about? Come on. All right. It's, it can be stressful for us. My kid is actually jazzed and joyful about what's coming. She's really expectant because she knows it's going to be awesome. And there's something to be learned from that for me. That what's next isn't just stressful, it's good. The problem with that is that we aren't that... Maybe we aren't that excited about what's next. We don't have that childlike joy and enthusiasm. You know... If you're like me, you just want your kid to be quiet because their enthusiasm stresses you out, right? And pity the parents because there's not, you know, I was looking at my kid this week and I said something like, you know silence is supposed to be the backdrop of your life. <laughs> and she didn't, she didn't quite understand it because it's, the, it's not there yet, you know? But I actually believe that, you know? I'm trying to, you know, we should be quiet. The morning is for quiet, you know? <laughs> So I think the issue that we face is that we aren't enthusiastic for the future. 
One, because it could just be more of the same. The other side of that is our present isn't bad enough for us to clamor for what's next. Because it's just okay, we're managing. We're coping, it's decent, everything's kind of okay. And this is going to sound really negative. And I, I'm, I'm prefacing it with what I'm, I have to say it again because I'm seeing what I'm about to say and it's very negative. You know, we're, we're just living mediocre lives with not much hope of them getting better and not much reason for them to either. You know, I think that's the darkness that we face. Everything's going to be the same and that's kind of how it all works. You know, I'm kind of past being excited for the birthday cake. You know, I've had plenty of cake in my life. There's no more joy in that. And I think this is in part because the future is bleak in actuality, and so we normalize our present circumstances. We're actually living in a very intense time and place. But maybe we can't bear the existential dilemmas we face, and so we just want to think of it all as business as usual. Watch, watch this happen to you when you see horrible things around you and kind of how you normalize, how you are normalized to cope with them, how, how they are normalized, and you're like, oh, it's not that bad. But it's hard, it's hard, it's, it's, it, but, but when you see it, you can really see how dark it is. Like the UN just told us how bleak the future of the earth is, right? They're basically saying the world is going to end unless we have, unless there is a drastic change. So that's a big thing that's happening, right? It's not business as usual. It's a big problem. And I have to, I'm, gonna, I'm not overstating it. It has to be this big. Or a quarter of a million people lose food stamps, right? That's a big problem. It's not a small problem. That's a big problem. And I know, I know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about him. Or, or maybe Trump got his wall after all because restrictions on immigration now is worse than ever without any construction happening that uh, is preventing it, much more than concrete could. And so you're surrounded by these things, and it might overwhelm you so much, you just, wanna, you just want to uh, avoid them. You just want to cope with them. You just want to normalize them. Some of you are mad at me that I just brought these up right now, and I, I reminded you of it because you're effective at, at ignoring it, because you can't, you can't endure it. I can relate. I'm sorry that I'm putting it in your face again because you are calculated in your newsfeed and you don't want to see this stuff. Last week, Bryant led us to sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, right? The most famous Advent song. Except we did not sing Rejoice, the, rejo- the refrain of Rejoice, as we looked at images of atrocities that surrounded us. And I loved that moment because it got us to feel the depravity of the world that we live in and actually expectantly wait our deliverance. You have to feel the depth of the depravity that you're in and that the world is in so that you can expectantly await your deliverance. And then we took communion and then we sang rejoice after that, right? It's a beautiful, resonating, lasting image. There's a reason to rejoice. But the concern here is These problems are too big, and our solution is too small. You know that prayer? Oh God, the sea is so big, but my boat is so small. Some of us are so overwhelmed by the evil around us that we can't bear to witness it all, so we just numb ourselves to it. And if you are numb, you won't feel the pain in your waiting, and you won't feel the joy in your deliverance. 
And that's kind of what I'm getting at. The global and national tragedies are very real, but they are so much bigger than us, it's hard to see ourselves in them. And so that makes imagining our deliverance even harder. We see cosmic horror around us, and we need cosmic faith to get through it, right? We need a cosmic plan to get through it. Cosmic intervention, right? That's, that's how big the problem is. So we, the problem we face is we lack the faith to imagine a future where all the horror that surrounds us is gone. And we don't have the endurance to feel our own discomfort, and so we don't have much expectation for our, our deliverance. I'm leaving that up there even though I just read it to you because it's a long sentence, and I, I sometimes think it's better if you see what I'm saying. Our lives are good enough at best, probably marginal in general. That's how the story goes. We don't have the enthusiasm of a child awaiting their birthday or the new eyes to see the world around us in her excitement and joy. I mean, you have to watch the kids when they experience something new. Just tremendous amounts of energy and joy and excitement. Like, especially, maybe just watch Elaine, because I don't know if every kid's like this, but, you know, she, she waves her hands around. I guess you're looking at me like, yeah, dude. <laughs> you do that too. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> we have genes that are similar, right? So she, she, she gets so excited, she stands up, she, and she's, you know, she's, you know, you've, yes, I guess just watch me, that's fine. <laughs> Get that enthusiasm from children. If we aren't careful, we'll just become old and cynical. What we're missing is imagination. Maybe, maybe John the Baptist can inspire us. John the Baptist is the central character for Advent, or one of the central characters. I, I will say the central character of Advent. But, 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 you know, there he is. He's never on a Christmas card. You know, you don't send your grandma a Christmas card with, with John the Baptist on it, right? That wouldn't be normal, right? Not on a Christmas calendar. not on Advent calendars. But the reason he's central for Advent is because he is the prophet that most vividly sees the coming of the Lord. Famously, he, he leaps in his mother's wombs at the announcement of Jesus, right? His cousin's birth. He's made for this moment. <laughs> then here he is in Mark 1 announcing Jesus. I didn't copy and paste this text. I had to transcribe it from a certain translation. So if you're reading it out loud and you uncover a problem, that's because of me. Someone out loud read this. <laughs> Beginning of the good tiding of Jesus the anointed. As has been written by Isaiah the prophet, see I send forth my messenger before your face, who will prepare your path. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the Lord's way, make straight his path. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of the heart's transformation for forgiveness of sins. And all the region of Judea and all the Jerusalemites went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed in camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins, and would eat locusts and wild honey. And he made his proclamation, saying, 
There comes hereafter one mightier than I, regarding whom I am not fit to bend down and loosen the thong of his sandals. I baptize you by water, but he will baptize you by the Holy Spirit. John's the messenger that brings us Jesus. His whole life is organized around the coming Savior. He is both familiar with the depravity, his own depravity, and he knows the liberation that awaits. He was born to declare the arrival of the Savior and the coming of the Messiah. He is the the lantern which shone in front of God. To quote John Calvin, he lived with one purpose, with a deep faith, knowing his calling, afraid of no one. And that lack of fear would result with his head on a plate. But his calling didn't make him arrogant. He knew Christ was coming after him and that Christ was greater than he was. And honestly, John the Baptist, this might sound a little grandiose, is a little like Circle of Hope. Hardly polished at all. Um, Prophetic, gruff, strange, unusual, mocked, ridiculed. Totally out of sync with our time and place at times. But he isn't a celebrity and he isn't trying to collect attention and neither are we. He has a role to play and so do we. What's John's role? Well, let's get into, let's get into a little more Bible study. John the Baptist in Mark 1. Um, now, Mark says, he's quoting Isaiah, the uh, first verse, see, I sent forth a messenger before your face who so will prepare your path. That's from Malachi. And then the next verse a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, is from Isaiah. The last verses of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 5 through 6, or Malachi 3, 23 in the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, Malachi has three chapters, and in the Christian Bible, Malachi has five. It's all the same text, they just broke it up differently. The last verses of the Old Testament mention the prophet Elijah. Look, I'm about to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the day of the Lord, great and fearsome. Right here. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, which is the Bible for uh, Jewish people, which is all of our Old Testament except uh, in a different order, the last book is Chronicles. They retell the story of Israel from a post-exilic context. Everything is good. The future is bright. The people of Israel are free to worship their God and doom and destruction is far gone, as is in Israel's other story. So in some ways, they've arrived. Chronicles does that. However, in the Christian Old Testament, Malachi uh, ends the compilation. Why? Because it ends with Elijah. And then the first gospel, not in order, but in terms of the date written, is Mark. And then Mark begins with who? With John, John the Baptist. John, the new Elijah. This is the most important distinction between the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible and why, nerds, you shouldn't use them interchangeably. I'm not calling all of you nerds. I'm just speaking to a certain segment of you that would use those terms. And I'm not using that as a pejorative. Elijah didn't die in the Old Testament. He was sent into heaven in a chariot of fire. And Jews thought... When Elijah returns, the end of the world would come and deliverance would follow. 
And then John arrives on the scene and is described the same way as Elijah. Elijah isn't a personal prophet, but he's fulfilling a role, right? Second Kings 1.8, he, he is a hairy man and, a, and, and, well, I really didn't write this right, and a leather belt is bound around his waist. And he says, it is Elijah the Tishbite. And John was clothed in camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins, and he would eat hun- locusts and wild honey. Same language describing these two prophets. Maybe even John the Baptist dressed like Elijah for that reason. He is fulfilling this role. He is the new Elijah. John is convicting the world of its sin and its bondage. And is pointing toward a future of hope and deliverance. And he is announcing the beginning of the end. He is here to declare the hope that is coming to those who repent. Jesus is coming to rectify, to justify, to bring his righteousness, and he will make the world right. He will reverse the course of history. John doesn't live a good life. The wickedness of the world overtakes him. He dies protesting an evil king. He suffers at the, at the, the, the hands of the world for whom he was the messenger of its liberator of its deliverer. The New Testament makes it clear that John is making a way for Jesus. And John has followers in his own right, and the New Testament writers are making it clear that John was making a way for someone mightier than he was. Here's the refrain again. John knows the depravity of the world that he's in and the hope of the one for whom he is the messenger. Our lives aren't like John the Baptist's. And they aren't as dramatic as some of the headlines we even read earlier. But we have our own advents to wait in, too. And more importantly, Jesus is actually returning. We don't talk about this much. That Jesus is returning. And I will give you a, I I will tell you why I think we don't. I think it's because we've individualized our faith. Here's how one writer put it. The coming of Jesus into individual hearts, heart was preached and taught as a substitute for the second coming. Personal salvation that undoes cosmic hope, undoes cosmic hope because it centers the locus of God's liberation in you instead of the whole world. You're individually saved, and that's all that matters. So Jesus has returned just in your heart, right? Isn't that something that we hear, not just in our upbringing like some of you did, but also in our culture at large? That we are the, that's pretty grandiose and and quite American, I might add, that you are the center of God's liberating work and God won't save the whole world. Now, I I, I think this is particularly true in uh, liberal mainline churches where we don't really talk about... um, the second coming, as it were, even though they utter it in their creed every, every time. We don't come from those traditions, so we probably don't uh, get into this as much. However, individualiz- individualizing our faith does make it too small to overcome the trouble in the world. Because we need more than personal salvation. We need the whole world to be redeemed. We're looking for that kind of change. Save me, Lord, from the trouble we're in. Save us. Do something. But the whole problem of the evil that surrounds me. 
And I, we see it all the time. You know, I finished writing this before we had a couple more shootings in Florida. You know, there is trouble around us all the time. And you're in your own trials right now. I know. How are you waiting in this world of present doom and a hope for uh, the promise that's to come? What are we doing? And, 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 and to use as dramatic language as I can, we're in a war as well, a war against evil, because even though liberation and deliverance will come, we're fighting the fight now as we wait. We are doing the things that don't feel natural to us. We're turning a corner. We're renewing our investments to God and to each other. And we will not be in despair thinking that we in the world will never change. God is coming. And we await our liberation and actively fight against that which oppresses us now. We actively <laughs> fight against evil now. That's what we do when we wait. And, and we do it in simple things. So, I'm, I just said, don't individualize your faith because that makes the hope too small. But if you make it too big, you don't know how to apply, you don't know how to express it. And so what I, wanna, what I want to now do is make it small so that you can make it big again. Does that make sense? I think you're doing it, right? It's that moment when you don't blow your lid at your roommate or your spouse and you decide to treat them with love that you don't think they deserve. It's when you decide to stick out your commitments even though it's easier to just run away. It's when you decide to be gentle with your kids even when they forever anticipate their birthdays. You know, it's the patience of every teacher and social worker and cell leader. It's my decision to take it easy on myself even though I haven't mastered every discipline I wish to as I was telling my spiritual director this week. It's my decision to accept God's love and acceptance of me, even though I never quite get there. That's the revolution. That's the big thing that we're doing expressed within you. Because you do need to have a personal experience. It does happen within you. Yes, the Spirit of God resides in you and you hold God. That isn't the end of the story, though. You know, I would say the Spirit of God is in you to comfort you as until Christ returns again. And we will keep declaring the death of Jesus after his first incognito coming in communion in a moment as we wait until he returns, just like the Paul says in Corinthians. Those are the fights we're fighting. And in our waiting, we are choosing to be someone and something else. We're prophesying the liberation that awaits the world in our actions now. So we live in a present evil age, as Paul talks about in, in Galatians 1. We see horror around us. And the only way through it is God's intervention. That's the only way it's going to happen, okay? So don't put all your faith in Elizabeth Warren. God has to liberate us. Through God's intervention. That's what has to happen. That's what John is announcing. It is that baby savior that we await. The coming of Jesus Christ. The end isn't here. And it's coming. And we wait for it. And that's hard to stomach. I know that you know that the depth of despair. 
in, in depravity that you're in, even if you try to numb it. I'm around very sensitive people, and I know that the promise of hope before us is hard to imagine, it's hard to believe in, it's hard to have faith in. When I say it's coming, when I say divine intervention is coming and the world's going to change, the world's going to, the world is turning around, it's hard to believe that. That's one of the reasons why we sing it, because you sing things you don't quite believe yet. You know, but I want to assure you, Circle of Hope, that, that you are the, that that hope for so many people, that divine intervention, you could be in somebody's life. And I want you to believe it. And it, so, I, I, it sounds ridiculous. But there's a reason that Jesus tells us to have faith like a child. And children get it. Children know the hope that could come. And they see the world in a way that God does. I really think that. I think they can show us something. And I think that's why you have calls for faith and belief and hope in the mysterious. Right? If you ever watch these godless Christmas movies, somehow they always end with faith and belief and hope. I don't even know what they're talking about. They're talking about Santa or something, right? And, and you know, it is, and you know, I don't even want to dismiss it because they're calling for the exact thing that we want, that we need. You know, and this is how they do it. They have to make it into a kids movie and, 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 and to get us to, to get us to engage in it because we're way too serious for that. So I'm just saying, no, don't, don't, don't think you're so serious. Don't let your cynicism overtake you. Have faith, have belief that God's intervention will come, that God will be born, that the, just like they did then, like the baby savior is going to come in a completely impractical way, in a completely ridiculous way. As we await our deliverance again, as we await Christ's return, it's going to feel that ridiculous. So be conscious of that and then take the step forward. Feel the depth of your uh, depravity. And keep imagining hope for the future. Let's imagine it together and then do it together. Let's pray and then do some talk back, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for uh, being in the mysterious and being in the wonder. May we have the faith to hope for what's next, for what you will do. And in our despair, may we have the faith to know that your intervention will come and save us. And may we look to each other, even the littlest among us, for that faith. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.